This is the Territory Story Podcast with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast and my name is Peter Gowers. Welcome to the first episode, official episode anyway, for 2023. I'd like to introduce my special guest co-host for this episode, all the way from CDU, Professor Liz Spencer. Hello, Liz. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, if you've been an avid listener of the Territory Story podcast, you'll already know that Liz was a guest from last year. And uh, both Leon and I thought she did a stellar performance. And we've always thought that the uh, American accent sounds a hell of a lot better than the Australian one. So Liz is overqualified for this role. I don't agree. I like the Australian accent. I think it works that, uh, like my kids believe that Australians don't have an accent. They think everybody else has one. So I think we just get used to our own. But at the end of the day, um, we feel the American accent's got a lot more authority to it. So uh, well, probably anyway, true. Probably it is what it is. So Liz, how was your break? Did you get away for Christmas and New Year? Oh, I had a lovely break. Thank you very much. It's um, it's. I always look forward to the end of the year to um spend time with my family you know and ah. um yeah that's that means the world to me and um you know and give them a hard time because you know i'm not there most of the time with my kids so i'd have to punish them a little bit over the make up for it when you are there mm, gotcha well it is um as i said it is the first official episode for the year and i have been copying quite a few messages uh through the territory story facebook page and and instagram as to when the hell we're going to pull our fingers out and uh, start recording again. So no pressure, but um, I suppose we better get into it because we do have another guest joining us today, um, also from CDU, and I'm going to try and get the pronunciation here right, Cyprian Radovoy. Did I get that right, Cyprian? Yeah, more or less. uh, That's how uh, um, English natives call me. I'm... So I'll be the one uh, counterbalancing the American accent with an Eastern European accent in your show. Well, well, welcome. Very much looking forward to chatting. And, and full disclosure, um, Liz and Cyprian do work together, so it's it's good for me because, Liz, you'll have some insights and you'll know some questions and where to take this. Great. Thanks, Peter. So if you've ever listened to a Territory Story podcast before, uh, this is the bit that uh, Mr. Leon would normally handle. So I'm also coming into this a little blind, Liz, because I tried to zone out when he was asking his questions. That, that's an absolute joke. I didn't. But um, Supreme, we'll get started by, on Territory Story, we always start with the same thing, and that is, what is your Territory Story? And that starts with, you know, where are you born and where are you from originally? Uh, my Territory Story, uh, taking it in uh, reverse chronological order, started three years ago. When I um, came here from uh, Armidale, New South Wales, from the University of uh, New England, um, so uh, I've been a Territorian for three years, and I loved it, and I plan to be a Territorian for much more. But yeah, going back at the beginnings, I was born in uh, uh, Romania a uh, very long time ago, um, when uh, that country was ruled by a bad guy called Ceausescu. We were in the communist side of, uh, of Europe. Um, Stayed in Romania till um, uh, the early 2000s when I joined the Foreign Affairs. Ceausescu, uh, we got rid of him, by the way, in 1989. I was a student at the um, Polytechnic uh, University at, at that time, so I'm an engineer as well. When he died, I did uh, law, which was always my passion, but uh, if you were to do law, during the communist regime, you are supposed to uh, learn all the ideological crap and just couldn't do that. As soon as he was killed, I got to law, became a lawyer, uh, practiced law for a while in Romania and the European Court of Human Rights, uh, then became a diplomat, had assignments in uh, India, in uh, Thailand, and in Egypt. And at some point, I decided to do a PhD. I did it in China and my colleagues there, my supervisor and her colleagues, lured me into academia, so that's how I became an academic. And from there, um, Australia, as I said, UNE in 2017 and now the territory. So we'll, we'll definitely go back um, in terms of uh, where you're from originally in Romania and, and 
to hear parts of that if we can. But I always, I always love, and we did the same thing with Liz when we spoke to her, but I always love, you know, trying to figure out what would have been the biggest culture shock in all of that. And although I'm sure moving to the various countries along the way would have provided that, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, a man from Eastern Europe arriving in Armadale, New South Wales, is about as big a culture shock as one has. Am I right? Uh, again, yes and no. Um, it depends on the person, I think, as well. Plus, um, going from a cultural shock to cultural shock, at some point you don't feel the shock anymore, you get used to it. Um, also, Armidale is quite rural, and it's exactly the size of the town where I was born in northern Romania, somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains, very near the border with um, uh, Transylvania. Um, Transylvania is a Romanian province. I was uh, from a province on the other side of the mountains, bordering Ukraine, very near Ukraine, to only 100 kilometers to the border. So uh, coming to Armidale was, in a way, closing a loop after mm. being in Bangkok, in New Delhi, in Beijing, in Cairo. Coming to Armidale, in a way, was like uh, uh, coming home to, to me. Wow. But, but very different countryside? Uh, very different indeed. Yeah, I, I love the, 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 the colonial architecture and uh, the atmosphere of peaceful town. And uh, I mm. uh, love it. Very different, different countryside uh, indeed. But, uh, but still, the feeling of the community and uh, the, uh, many things were, uh, were similar to what I had back home. Ch- Ciprian, what, most diplomats don't decide to do a PhD. How did that happen? It happened uh, by... Uh, I always wanted to uh, to, to learn more, uh, and it was a plan that I kept postponing. I had to be pushed by either persons or events, like when I did my master in Asian studies in 2006 at Lund University. It was uh, in Sweden. I, in Sweden, yeah. yeah. It was my wife I had at the time that actually pushed me. She said that I I should pursue my dream of of, of learning. And then with a PhD, it was the events. I was at the time in the foreign affairs. And with the financial crisis that uh, you guys sent us from the United States, thank you for that, (laughs) I got... got, I didn't lose my job, but I lost my position in the uh, Romanian embassy in Cairo. They cut more than 700 jobs in the foreign affairs positions abroad. So what year would that have been? I, I was I was uh, in the Romanian embassy in Cairo. I was a diplomat. I was a consul in Cairo in Egypt, 2009, 2010. And in 2010, they closed more than half of the embassies abroad, and they reduced the other to one or two or three persons, like the ambassadors were sent to do consular work and so on. So me as a, as a consul in the consular section, I, I didn't have a position anymore. So they sent me back to Romania to the headquarters. And I just couldn't stand the headquarters. So I got to a depression. My wife was with me, uh, with me at that time. Uh, also because of the financial crisis, our investment in property went to from 100% to 25% of the value. I had some uh, loans from banks and they were already threatening to foreclose uh, some of these properties. So... Uh, my wife said that... In Romania, sorry. We were, we were in Romania, yeah. We, I, I was in Bucharest at the uh, Foreign Affairs Headquarters. So anyway, it was a, 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 a bad time, 2010. Uh, a lot of pressure. I, was, I had a, a real depression, a, a, quite a serious depression. And my wife told me, she said, you know what, Just you, 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 like, you like eating rice. Let's go to Thailand. We live in our farm. We eat rice. We just cash out whatever we have and we go. And by the way, you should do the two things that you always wanted. That long motorcycle trip from uh, Romania to Thailand across Asia, Central Asia and Asia. That's one thing. And the other thing, uh, to do a PhD. So we cashed everything uh, out. We returned the money to the bank. We made the deal with the bank to take the house uh, by, and to, to cancel the loans. And, and anyway, we, we only kept one um, uh, house the jewel of the crown in the, the historic center of Bucharest, a, a historic building, very nice apartment, uh, which was to provide us with some cash from uh, from rental. And uh, we were left after all these things with 40,000 euro. Um, and we divided half-half. With half of it, I paid for a PhD with a Chinese university. Didn't have money enough to, to, uh, to go to Western University. Uh, and with the other half, I financed my uh, uh, trip I already had the motorcycle, um, good enough to do the trip at Suzuki. 
and I uh, looked for some companions. Found what, what, what happened to your wife? Uh, she flew. She flew to Thailand, and she was supposed to. Oh, she didn't uh, want to do the motorcycle trip. No, she didn't. Okay. She was supposed to be three months, thirty thousand kilometers. So she said, uh, uh, "No." So I'll she catch you there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she flew to Thailand, and uh, um, I. Um, we closed everything in Romania, and I moved to to Asia in two thousand and um, eleven. Okay, stop. <laughs> this is getting way too interesting. Okay. Mm. I just need to I just need to go back for a second. So let's let's start in your hometown of Romania. Mum and dad and brothers and sisters. Mum and dad are both uh, teachers. Uh, Mum teacher of French language, uh, dad teacher of Romanian language. Um, small um, uh, town around 30,000 people in uh, northern Moldova. Quite intellectual, provincial, but intellectual with uh, like um, uh, poetry uh, sessions and uh, uh, a, a, growing, a good environment to grow up, except that I uh, landed in a um, high school class that was designed for uh, rich kids, rich kids. And mm-hmm. we had rich kids during communists too. Their parents would be like the, the head of the um, um, farm cooperative, the head of the whatever party control of something. So anyway, the communist elite. And, um, and that's a funny thing. So these classes were designed, not like you would think in Australia, to uh, give an easier life to that, those kids. The parents would put pressure on the education system to make these special classes for their uh, uh, kids in order to make the life harder for them. So the most difficult teachers, those reputed to be the toughest, would be assigned to these classes. Mm. Now, um, and Why did they want to make the life harder for them? So that they would to, be tougher? or To make sure that they really learn and they are prepared yeah. to, 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 to be. The education was, uh, the, it was still a Soviet style of education at the time. And to these people, it was like the tougher version of the Soviet style of education. And to not make it look like it's a corrupt thing, they would randomly pick a few simple people like me. My parents were not in the communist, they were very simple people. So I landed in this class and studying hard is totally against my, my personality. My, so um, I, I did very bad in the high school. Um, yeah, that was the life in my town. And then I moved to Bucharest at the, uh, to the university. The university, again, it was less than 20%. Of the, of the high school graduates who would do the university, 80% would just go to the professions, plumbers, electricians, uh, whatever. Um, if you enter the faculty exam, if you pass the faculty test, uh, you would go to the army only one year. If you fail the faculty test at the age of 18, you would go for two years in the army. So uh, that's uh, the reason I chose engineering. I I have no inclination for it. I still don't know it's, why it's called in the refrigerator, although I'm an engineer, I'm a specialist in refrigerators. <laughs> um, but anyway, I did it to avoid the, the one year, um, the, the, the two years are. So I left to, to, for Bucharest, I got a job as an engineer, and I married there and stayed there. Okay, so in your hometown, you mentioned before that it felt like the closing of a loop when you arrived in Armadale in New South Wales, which is surrounded by farmland, and uh, people involved in that sort of industry. So what, what was the main industry of your hometown? There were a few factories, mostly um, uh, timber, because my hometown was in the mountains. It's uh, surrounded by hills. Actually, I spent uh, all my youth on those hills reading the uh, Russian, French, um, um, British, and American classics, because... Uh, Contemporary literature was not uh, allowed at the time. I had a strong passion for reading since I was like seven or eight. Uh, I was reading in, in uh, French and in Romanian. I, I didn't, I couldn't speak English at that time. Mm. It was, it was not encouraged. It was the language of the imperialists. So they were encouraging French because French is seen as a France is seen as a benign nation. Nation. Uh, so um, You're so um, wrong. <laughs> this, that's French a lot here, Matt. It's so benign. Yeah, that's what Charles <laughs> because. So um, um, yeah, I, I spend my time uh, reading and uh, walking the, the mountains around my hometown, and uh, strongly recommend my hometown if you ever visit uh, Eastern Europe. What's okay. it called? What is the name of the town? 
Piatra Nemtz, which means the German stoned. Ah. It was a, uh, we have a strong German minority. Even our president now is a, a German uh, ethnic. Oh, wow. So just two other questions. One, and this is a, you know, a tough one because it could go on forever, I'm sure, but can you uh, give us some insight into what it's like to grow up in a communist country? Because, you know, part of my ignorance, but my mind automatically goes to every child wearing the same coloured clothes, all the cars in the street are the same colour. That's all, exactly it, the case. It's not wow. the same colour, but it's uh, uh, you have four or five choices, but it's all Dacia, the Romanian-made uh, wow. uh, yes, it's exactly like this, and it's a, a huge level of uh, frustration to people who who read. Like even by even reading the classics, they they allowed us to read the classics. Actually, they push us to read the classics because they depict a very um, you know dark image of the West. You read the Dickens, and you hate the West. You yeah. don't want to live there. Uh, same with Tolstoy. Um, so. Um, but to me, I was craving for seeing what's beyond the border. It was not allowed to travel uh, uh, abroad. Mm. And uh, only those with strong connections with the Communist Party would uh, be allowed to uh, uh, do their holidays in Bulgaria uh, or in, um, I don't know, in these friendly countries. Serbia was not a friendly country because Tito was uh, you know, going too much towards the West. Uh, Hungary neither. So, uh, yes, I think Ukraine, Bulgaria, and the Republic of Moldova were well, the communist elite would do their holidays, and the rest mm. of us would not be allowed to leave the country. So I built this huge desire to see what's beyond the borders, because we were told all this crap, all this communist mythology that we are the best, and uh, uh, mm. so on. So I had my doubts, and as soon as Ceausescu was killed, that's what I did. I traveled continuously for two years. Um, a time in which the smarter people would make money because the, the you know everything was yeah. was, uh, was you would sell anything you, you go yeah. to Turkey you bring bring a, a, a truck of jeans you'd get rich overnight mm. but when people were doing business between ninety and ninety two I was just traveling just yeah. to see what's yeah. on that and um, Cyprian I'm always fascinated by particularly people who grew up in Europe and you've already mentioned about probably four or five of them, but how many languages did you speak at home and how many languages were you or are you able to speak? At home, I only spoke Romanian, but um, my mother somehow, through her connections, uh, was getting me the PIF magazine. I don't know, probably you're too young to have heard of PIF magazine. It's um, a French, uh, de ciné, how do you say, uh, the, the cartoons, cartoons for kids with this uh, hero. The dog, uh, Pif, and uh, Hercule is a friend, cat. And um, she was uh, reading to me every night from um, uh, those, those stories. And that's how I learned French together with uh, Romanian when I was six, seven, uh, uh, eight. And then the next day, I would take the kids outside and I would pretend to read them the Pif magazine. And they were amazed. I, can, I, I had a good memory, so I just repeated <laughs> what, what mom had. Anyway, I was kind of a celebrity in my neighborhood from the age of uh, seven or eight. So uh, French, I learned French at a uh, young age, but after that, nothing uh, for a while. Uh, then I had to learn English when I became a lawyer, and um, my firm had cases at the European Court of Human Rights. We were taking cases of abused Romanians to the Court of Strasbourg, and I had to work on those cases. So that's when I learned English. Um, my um, uh, the, the boss, the firm boss, uh, also sent me to some training at the University of Birmingham in 1998, where actually I consolidated my uh, uh, my knowledge. So that's when I learned uh, English, and then I learned Spanish because uh, when I uh, when I you married, can. no, I married <laughs> I married the Spanish um, uh, um, ah. woman, a flamenco dancer, uh, and uh, I learn uh, I know all the dirty words, so I really want to. <laughs> a, a trip to Spain. So it's such a treasure to know so many dirty words. So I want to somehow to put it to use. So <laughs> that's perfect. We, we don't. We don't. We, we don't know when we picked up the the flamenco dancer, and the other one isn't right. around yet. I know so we've got to go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have one question, Liz. I know you've got many, but no, 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 uh, I'm sure this is on the tip of everyone's tongues, something you mentioned before, Cyprian, please do tell what are the American classics. 
Uh, I meant uh, Steinbeck, let's say. Steinbeck was my, my favorite. And again, he was uh, re strongly recommended because he made Look America so like such a dark and sad, uh, sad place. Interesting. Right, Liz, hit us with some of your finest professorial questions. <laughs> oh, well, um, I think um, le listeners would really like to hear a bit more. Um, I certainly would about um, how you chose the, um, the the motorcycle route. So I think we're around circa 2010, 2011, when you decide to ride your motorcycle across Asia to Thailand. Yeah, that's when we decided to leave Europe for good and to, to live in, uh, in Thailand at the farm. And in the meantime, uh, to do a PhD, I, I didn't see anything coming from that PhD, but I still wanted to, to do it. So I paid it uh, all in advance. And uh, yes, that was 2011. So you knew you were going to do the PhD in China, and that was not in Dalian at that point. So I want to get to Dalian. No, no, no. It was in Beijing. Yeah, Dalian came, uh, came, came later. So you're, you're, you're planning on doing the PhD, you, you divided up your money and you said, we're going to do the PhD and I'm going to ride my motorcycle and we're going to end up, and I'm going to do this all once I end up on the, I'm going to do the PhD once I end up on the farm in Thailand. Yes. No, uh, no uh, the other way around. Uh, I was uh, going to ride my motorcycle to, to Bangkok. Nok was already there. Nok is my wife. Was already there uh, uh, taking back her nursing job in the hospital. She's a registered nurse in the emergency room. Um, so uh, she was supposed to be there, and I was supposed to ride my motorcycle to her first, get to Bangkok, sell the motorcycle, and from Bangkok fly to Beijing to do my PhD three uh, years, and then return to, uh, to Bangkok and maybe move together to her parents' farm in the south of Thailand. Did you ever move to the parents' farm? Uh, not really, because... Um, these people at the Chinese university where I was doing a PhD, I told you, kind of liked me, and they said I should be a teacher. And I said, no way. <laughs> I, I hate speaking in, in public. I, I'm, a, uh, I'm just not fit for that. And they said, we'll see about that. And in this uh -oh. Chinese strategic way that I learned to love... You know about the communists. <laughs> it's not that. No, no. Here it was not about that. Here it was about, just about uh, them uh, wanting to, I don't know, to help me or maybe to... Uh, they thought somehow that I'm a good addition to their law school. And it was a good law school. It's Which a, law school? It's the University of International Business and Economics. It's position 500, I think, in the Times Higher Education. Uh, so it's more or less the same uh, status like CDU. And it was in Dalian? It was in Beijing. Okay. In Beijing. All right. Yeah. How long did you teach there? Uh, I didn't teach there in the beginning. They sent me to a third level uh, school first, just to make sure that I can actually teach. Uh, and it was a big success. Everybody applauded me. Although I was to find out later that nobody can understand a damn word in English, but they were instructed <laughs> to encourage me. So anyway, I spoke for <laughs> one hour. They looked very focused, and at the end, well, yeah. Um, anyway, so I'm, uh, that was I'm sure you did well. We have no <laughs> idea what you said, but I'm sure you did a great job. <laughs> yeah. And then they sent me to the second um, tier. They have three tiers in the university. So a second tier university, China University of Youth, China Youth University of Political Science where actually they could speak English and it was a very challenging environment, but yeah, it seems that I passed that too. And this was during the PhD. Uh, and when I completed my PhD in 2014, then they offered me a, a three-year contract. In Dalian? In Beijing. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to get you to Dalian. <laughs> so what was, what was the PhD in? Uh, international investment law. I thought if I'm doing something, maybe to do something that may open a career in the future in trade, international trade, like combine with the foreign affairs and stuff like this. Okay. I, so, so Peter, do you think we should circle back and and try to get this this travel through through? Try to hear about this trip, Tajikistan yep. and stuff. What, yep. what what happened there, Cyprian? Can you tell? Can you take us through that a little bit? Uh, yes, so it went from uh, July 2011 till October 2011, where I was expected to report to Beijing for the PhD. Uh, so what, about a bit more than three months, we did around three weeks. So we means me, two Englishmen, two Irishmen, <laughs> um, and an American. So we connected on, uh, on the internet. Um, so we crossed the uh, Romanian border into Ukraine. We did about three weeks in Ukraine. 
which was lovely. It's so tragic what happens now. Those people were so nice and friendly, and we would just put our tents in their court in in their yards, asking permission. Of course, they wouldn't care. In the evening, they would come to us with a bottle of vodka and sharing stories. And it was really idyllic, like from like we are traveling in another century. So about three weeks in Ukraine, they went, then we crossed into uh, Russia, uh, which was still okay. People just minding their business, but a bit more uh, like um, serious and. It was to me. I, I really wanted to see um, uh, Stalingrad. It's, it's called Volgograd now, because more than a hundred thousand Romanians died there in the Second World War. We were mm. on the wrong side in the Second World War. We were with the Germans. So um, uh, in the siege of Stalingrad, uh, 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 a huge number of Romanians died there. So I went there to, to visit their grave. Anyway, so then we continued into Kazakhstan which is my favorite, it's still my favorite country in the world. And it's nothing there to see. If, you, if you're asking me what's there to impress, it's nothing <laughs> there to see, but it's just the people. Um, as uh, nomads themselves, they would see us looking at our motorbikes full of stuff, and uh, they would see us somehow as, as brothers. And I had many, many cases of really uh, um, people showing their kindness. And I, I remember this guy, I passed his, um, I say I, because we were splitting. The five of us were splitting, splitting all, the, all the time, and we were discussing. We'll meet in Almaty in five days. We'll meet in Shenzhen uh, in 20 days. Um, so I passed this truck carrying uh, watermelons, and the guy I can see in the mirror, after I pass him, I can see in the mirror the guy the driver waves at, at me from. So I stopped, and he said, you're going long distance. You need to have one of my watermelons. Or same, I go to the bakery and they wouldn't take my money. They said, you're going long distance, you need to keep your money. So I was really, really, I I grew very, very fond of that country. And then Mm -hmm. I passed into China, where the first Chinese words I learned are which means how much, how much it costs. Everybody was asking me how much my motorcycle costs. (laughs) When I told them the real price, which was about $10,000, was a used one, I could feel that right away that I'm losing their respect. So I learned along the way. So from the first border of China till I left China into Laos, my motorcycle price grew from $10,000 to (laughs) $100,000. And people were really, you're cool. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I crossed China uh, in uh, one month, a bit more than one month, and then Laos. And then... um, my little knock was waiting for me at the border between Laos and uh, Thailand in October 2011. Had you met Nock then when you were doing diplomatic work in Thailand many years before? Is that how you had met her? I thought you met her at the end of the motorcycle trip, but you already knew her. You no, already, no. She was already your wife. We were together. We uh, already we married in December 2006. No, I married. I, I met her after I, um, I, I divorced my uh, Spanish-American wife. She was an American citizen. She was born in San Francisco. Um, Good move. Divorce the American. <laughs> yes, I divorced the American, or she divorced me. Uh, and uh, I thought I thought I should uh, meet a South, South Asian uh, girl. So uh, we just met on uh, on the internet, and uh, in two thousand and six, I was already in uh, Lund, the master. And I had uh, three colleagues at the master from Thailand, and I spoke with them uh, a lot. And that's how I, it, they explained me the difference between a traditional um, uh, woman in Thailand and a materialist woman in Thailand and so on. So they equipped me with all the knowledge I know to not, uh, you know, get, uh, I'm good enough anyway, and you're reading people anyway. So, uh, yeah, I went on the internet and uh, I found this girl, the only one who didn't post a picture of herself. And that was one factor that attracted me because I was not after, not necessarily after a good-looking woman. And the second one was the name Chisa. Chisa. It sounded like music to me. Mm. So I contact Chisa, and she says that she's there to learn English. She's a registered nurse. And I said, Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Of course you'd say that. And anyway, talking more <laughs> and more, more to her, I decided to to go visit her, and I visited her, and I realized I came across a treasure. She was one of, of these Asian leftover women. Uh, they don't marry because they are poor and their skin is dark. So, uh, which mm. was really, really a treasure. So I, I, I thought, no way, uh, this, this needs to be my, my partner. So I 
yeah, I made sure that she, she and we are together 17 years now and it's really every day with her is a, is a joy. That is so lovely. We were hoping to get her on with you, but it didn't work out this time. But maybe another time we could we could um, talk to Nock, Peter. I don't know what you think. But. She works in a, in a uh, aged care, so she works. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, one of the things that I was thinking about when, when I was thinking about your career, and and um, I'm not trying to um, you know redirect or, or but but I but in thinking about. Um, diplomacy, and you you started as a as an engineer, and you got into diplomacy, and then and then it, as an academic. And I do want to talk about Dalian somehow. We're gonna work that in. Um, how what, what's Dalian? By the way, I keep mentioning it. <laughs> I must be m- mispronouncing it. No, Is no, this no, city no, in I, China? I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, um, but what what's the common thread that that um, in terms of of um, the theme how is it that that you are you know you find yourself transitioning from in those different sorts of roles and and what what runs through all of them for you in terms of the work that you do the only one that doesn't fit there is my quality as an engineer and as i said uh if uh if you want to be in a profession not involving ideology you needed to be in the communist times, either a doctor or uh, an engineer. Even even if you are, a, I don't know, an agrotechnician, you would be involved with the cooperatives and stuff like this, which, uh, and uh, I, I can't stand seeing blood. So a uh, doctor was not an option to, <laughs> to me. So that's why I decided to, to go for engineering uh, until better times come. And uh, I, I was really, really bad as, a, as an engineer. I, I could see, I can see right away if I have a picture of the engine with all the little clocks and uh, beds and everything, I can tell you right away how it works. But I cannot remember the details. I cannot remember the formulas. I cannot, uh, I'm, I'm hopeless. I, I always see the big picture. Uh, but still I graduated somehow uh, because my first wife, who was my colleague at the uh, mechanical school, who is now a professor at Duke University, uh, was very good at the other side. So we completed each other uh, very well. She helped me uh, with the details. I helped her with the broad picture. Sometimes I remember she would come to me and ask me, how, how, how does this thing actually move? How does it work? And I would tell her, but I wouldn't know further than that. So anyway, we, she, she helped uh, me. I'm grateful to, to her for the help she gave me to, to graduate from the engineering school. And then I, uh, was, um, um, I worked as an engineer for... Uh, almost a year, but I hate that time. So this doesn't fit in the picture. It was an accident. But from there, everything fits, I think, because it's all about um, law and intellectual exploration. So I was a lawyer. I was a consul, which is mostly about law. I was using my legal knowledge to protect Romanians in uh, in Egypt, in um, Delhi, in, uh, in Thailand. So it's still about law. It's about international law this time. But the first one was also about international law because we were taking cases at the uh, European Court of Human Rights and uh, we were applying the international law mm-hmm. to, to find justice for Romanians who couldn't find justice in the Romanian courts. And academia just fits perfect with the other two. So I think mm-hmm. it's a very coherent, actually, uh, professional story, except for the mechanical engineer. I want to get to Dalian, but what, <laughs> but what, but what about um, what do you think about the the international sort of the, the configuration of, of of international politics and 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 um, and human rights and and um, and international affairs at the moment? A lot of people think we're in a pretty precarious situation, and I certainly felt um, things shifted dramatically in in February of, of last year. Um, what, what's your view on on what's happening in the world at the moment? Yeah, I feel the same, and I feel that uh, but again, international law is trashed by the strong men. Something that I, th- I thought will never happen with uh, democracy, with the end of history predicted by Fukuyama in thirty years ago. I, I thought all the countries will smoothly move towards democracies, and and now we are seeing the strong men coming back. It makes you wonder if it's something wrong with the human race. I, I don't know, but yeah, I have the same feeling of precarity, and reminds me a bit of the, at a much larger scale of the feeling I had in Romania, the Romanian revolution in 1999. That feeling that anything can happen. At, uh, uh, that was the, the, the scariest moment in my, my life. Those days where we were not sure if Ceausescu is gone or it's still there, some of us already were hoping that perhaps it's better that if it's, it, that it's still there, because you, the, the masses, the crowds, you don't know what they are 
capable of. Others were having hopes for, you know, a turn to democracy. But anyway, it was this like uh, the time was like suspended for for a few days. So I feel that the world is the same. No, it it, it can go both ways. Mm-hmm. Because I can't imagine what that would be like. And, uh, you know, we've had a few conversations with people over the journey of this podcast who have come from communist countries. And, you know, in one case, we, we talked about quite a dramatic escape from that country. Um, you know, I remember quite vividly what it was like when the wall came down in Berlin. But I can only tell you what it looked like from the West. And I find it really interesting, Cyprian, that you talk about, you know, the unease and not knowing and, you know, the future being uncertain. Um, Because I know from a Western point of view, there was such excitement as to what this could mean with countries, you know, such as East Germany or um, others of that nature now joining the West, so to speak, but then that's only if you think that the West's doing the right job. Can can you give some insight as to what that mindset was like? Maybe how your parents felt or your friends felt, and you know what the, the general vibe or feeling was at the time. It was uh, it was it was something we expected because we could uh, get this radio free Europe. We could listen. They were. Um, they're not able to completely close reception, so we could listen. So we know what's happening around Romania. But still, when you looked inside Romania, it looked like it's really will, it will never change. The communist regime seems so strongly rooted there. So uh, we were hopeful, but not really uh, expecting it that early. And then one day in December 1989, uh, Ceausescu gathers this huge crowd, a million people in the main square in Bucharest, uh, to tell them about the foreign element stimulating some uprisings in the western part of Romania, western part of Romania being Transylvania, bordering Hungary. It moved between us and them in history several times. Uh, so he was blaming foreign elements in Transylvania, which everybody, of course, was thinking uh, Hungarians. Others were thinking Russians because Ceausescu was in a very cold relationship with the Soviet Union. She, uh, he had been with, in a cold relationship since 1968 when Romania was the only communist country that uh, uh, stood against the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, so anyway, uh, we, he, he organized this huge meeting to show that the population um, supports him. And all of a sudden... Uh, there's, we were watching it on TV because everybody knew there's something happening and we, everybody wanted to know what he's going to say. And he was saying his usual crap about, you know, stand uniting the communist party, blah, blah. But at some point the crowds began moving, began like, uh, you could see like waves and he got confused. And he said something like, stand still, stand still. And after that, it's a quiet, comrades, comrades, let's keep calm. And then he said, I will raise your salaries. That was the most stupid thing. The idiot thought that it's salaries. We, we had money. There was nothing to buy with them. The, the stores were empty. So he said that this is what's going to resolve the, the problem. It was so like, anyway. So after that, they cut the transmission. Uh, at the time, I was in my hometown, and my wife was in Bucharest. We were often doing that because it's um, about 500 kilometers, but Romania didn't have highways at that time. So it was a long trip, uh, exhausting trip. I, sometimes I would take her with me, sometimes not. So this time, I was um, alone to spend a week with my my family. She was in Bucharest. I tried to contact her in Bucharest. The, the lines were uh, were down, too. So the, the, the whole country went uh, went dark. And um, that night, uh, I decided to go back to be with her because we, we, we could know that things would happen. I think this was the 21st of December. Uh, so I went to the train station in my hometown, empty. Nobody there, nobody at the counter. Nobody. So I thought there would be no train. Yet the train somehow, somehow came. So I think it was a mechanic who, I don't know, didn't follow the news. I just took the train. <laughs> so I was... <laughs> 
<laughs> so for, 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 for seven hours, for seven hours, I was the only traveler on that train. It was like a surrealist. Wow. Wow. So I arrived in Bucharest in the morning, the morning of the 22nd of December, not knowing what happened. Later on, I was found out that they sent the tanks. That night, there were um, hundreds of uh, young people mostly killed in the center. Bucharest was also empty, no taxi, no nothing. And uh, my um, um, parents-in-law house um, unit was like uh, 15, almost 20 kilometers, was in the outskirts. So I had to walk for 15 kilometers. Again, nobody. It was like a, a, a ghost city. Everybody was in their homes waiting for things. And just when I, when I arrived home at uh, 11 or 12, the, 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 the TV uh, transmission was restored. And the news people said, the dictator has run. We are free. And then all of a sudden, it was uh, streets were flooded with, uh, with people. And uh, yeah, we went to, to town to celebrate. And the sad thing, this was 22nd of December. The sad thing is, later on, they showed uh, how they arrested Ceausescu and they, they killed him, 25, the 25th of December. The sad thing is that as many people died after that, killed by snipers, that died before killed by tanks. Uh, nobody ever knew who the snipers uh, were. Anyway, that's how I uh, lived the Romanian so-called revolution. Wow, what a story. You said you could be just out walking in the street, going out with your with your partner, and and your partner would be shot. You could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Many many cases happen. They are on, on on the media, on Google. Yeah, you just walk on the street, and you'll you'll be shot in the head from some somewhere. That's so uncertainty. The, are these supporters of the old regime? They never found and sentenced anyone, so we don't know oh. who they were. And Cyprian, just quickly on that front, I always wonder in those situations. Uh, are there any um, are there any people that are supporting the regime at that time who were happy with how things were? Uh, I would say that at that time it was that bad that not even the communist elite would support them. <laughs> right. So in the late seventies, in the late sixties, actually when he took the power in the early seventies, everybody was happy. The borders were open. Uh, we we were actually. We are probably living better than in the West because we had a strong social security system. Uh, historians say uh, that everything changed in 1971 when he visited uh, Kim Il Sen and Mao Zedong in uh, North Korea and in uh, in China, and uh, he liked that and he turned Romania into a country of that style. Mm -hmm. uh, so from there, gradually there was dissent, strong dissent in the Communist Party and even the, the um, communist leaders, local leaders, and so on. They would kind of uh, uh, being more on the side of the population than on the side of the regime. So it was a lot of sabotage, including intellectual sabotage, like people people were speaking against the regime more and more. Yeah. So the answer is no, I guess he had no supporter. Although at the trial, that's, the, that's an interesting thing. So at the trial, he kept demanding to be judged by the people. I mean, if they put a revolver in my head, I would have killed him uh, my, myself. Everybody hated him, but somehow he thought that people love him. Uh, isn't that interesting? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me just to hear that insight from you know someone who was there at the time when these things happened. Because you know, this is this is recent history, but you don't get to talk to someone like yourself who's actually lived it from the other side, so to speak. Thank you. Brother Liz, let's get to where you want to get to. I know you're desperate. Well, <laughs> yeah, let's get to Dalian. Well, well, no, I want to ask you something else. But, um, <laughs> can you get a good cigar in Dalian? <laughs> uh, that's actually the reason I um, was. I looked to uh, leaving Dalian for either Australia or Canada. I applied to both and uh, Australia took me. Um, it was, there was so much pollution, even in Dalian, which is a nice city, about one hour flight from uh, from Beijing. It's uh, bordering, is near the border with North Korea, so it's in Manchuria. Lovely uh, city. Isn't it the Venice of Manchuria or something like that? Uh, <laughs> that's not the Venice, I think. Uh, it's, uh, it's cool, is. <laughs> 
but yeah, sure. It's about yeah, it's about myself, not you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Whatever. From now on, it's the best. Yes. <laughs> but no, wait, wait. You may be right. They have one of these amusement parks, the Kichi, Kichi parks they have in China, which is modeled after Venice. So actually, you can have a gondola in Bali, and you are right. They have a Venice in, mini- you. in miniature. So you're right. <laughs> Uh, so uh, no, it's a it's a lovely city with a, a mix of uh, Russian and uh, Japanese um, architecture. It was first um, occupied by the Russians in the 19th century, and then after the Russo-Japanese um, War, uh, when the Japan won, they they took it, and the, the Chinese only got it back after the Second World War. So it's a cultural mix. Very, it's it, it's a lovely lovely uh, place. We loved it there, except that it was still very pollution, even though it was by the sea. Uh, still too polluted, and I was smoking at the time, like um, uh, like four or five cigars a day. They were cheap, and uh, it, it seemed like it wouldn't make any difference anyway. So I was always surrounded by a cloud of uh, mm. smoke. And uh, yeah. other than that, we were doing very well. The the people at the university, Dalian Maritime University, lovely people. They even helped Nock get a job there as a nurse. So it looked like we will start a new life in in Dalian. And we we're happy there. My best friend was an Aussie, by the way. Mm. Um, who was a, a teacher at the oh, same school. From the territory? Uh, not from the territory, no, no, Victorian. Um, so uh, I was happy there, but I thought I will end up with the lung cancer in a... Yeah. So. so so two questions about that. Where did, where do you, where did, where does the tobacco come from um, that, to make the cigars in Dalian? And also, can you tell us a little bit about how you... Um, how you succeeded with the with the mooding team there, and and how your job, how your job, how you, how your trajectory rose and fell. It seemed your your fortunes rose and fell with your job in Dalian. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Dalian is related to that. The mooting success was in Beijing again. This University oh, okay. International Business Center, but that's the reason. My success is the reason that I had to leave, because success does not last forever. However, the, a Chinese employer would expect it to last forever. They would take things for granted. So when uh, they were uh, first giving me a job, they said, you should also coordinate this mood court, just up mood court. Uh, don't worry, there's no pressure. We never made it to the international rounds. We are an economic-focused university. We don't care too much about public international. Also, the result doesn't matter. So I take the team and I take them to the international rounds in Washington. Wow, that's great. They gave me an envelope full of money, a big cash reward. Second year, the same, even better. They organize a conference for me to explain people how to achieve success in mooting and so on. Third year, the same. I'm, uh, so they had never been again to the international rounds in Washington DC uh, in their history of uh, 60 years. And then I take them there three years in a row. And the fourth year I failed and I was fired. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. From so low was, expectations to a lot of expectations. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I ended yeah. up in, in, in Dalian. But could you, could you please just explain, sorry, for my ignorance, but what what it is you were actually doing? Did you say moting or mooting? Uh, mooting. It's um it's a competition between universities in the uh, world, uh, a competition that simulates a case at the International Court of Justice in Hague. So you have a very detailed case, tens of pages of uh, information, fictional information about mm. a conflict between two fictional countries, and you are supposed to defend uh, either of them, and. Um, it's first uh, in uh, national rounds, and in China is a huge thing. You have more than 60 universities that participate. And uh, you have as judges, uh, the students will be the, the uh, counsels, the lawyers, defending the interests of uh, either country. And as judges, you often have real judges from the local courts and sometimes mm-hmm. international judges. And at the international in rounds in Washington, you really have you, you even have uh, as guests real judges from the International Court of Justice. And um, nationally, 10% of the universities attending will make it further. So in China, 60 universities, there will be six universities after the internal competition going further. Mm. So I, and I was the coach. That means I was supervising the whole training process. The students are supposed to research, to build a case. and But as a coach, you know, I can direct them smoothly mm. or less smoothly towards uh, uh, building a strong uh, uh, case. And I was experienced in that from building cases for the European Court of Human Rights, so I knew, knew how to build an international law argument. So it was somewhat uh, uh, easy 
for me. And actually, anyway, the fourth year when I the when I failed, it's because I had an American colleague again. Thanks, uh, <laughs> um, who said that my methods are not good, are Soviet-style methods, and nobody does this anymore. So we need to do it the way he says because he pleaded in the uh, Supreme Court of whatever state. And the Chinese have a huge admiration for the Americans. They hate mm. them, but they admire <laughs> They want to be like them. Yeah. So between the Romanian guy who, you know, yeah, maybe had some success recently, but he's just a Romanian, and the American. <laughs> they, they follow the American, but they still let me do it. So, of course, I failed. You know, you know your argument should have been, I've had first-time luck. Three times in a row. Mm. <laughs> yes, it's a good one. <laughs> and the and the cigars. Where where does the tobacco come from to give you some comfort after all yeah. that? I think they are all fakes. I mean, uh, I was I was having a Cohiba cigar, which for which I pay like uh, I don't know fifty dollars here in Australia. I was having it for two dollars. So <laughs> I guess they came from there. From and what's your what's your favorite cigar now? Uh now I uh, don't smoke much anymore because it's just too expensive. And when I was the only one making money, I wouldn't care about spending money for that. But when Nock started, Nock is the the, the, the nickname of, of my wife, wife means bird. Her name is Chisa. There's, so a what, of, there's a lot of Thai ladies with that nickname, isn't there? Mm. It means bird. Yeah. So yeah, it's okay. a common one. Okay. So when she started working, she worked so hard uh, in aged care, in home care. And uh, for the minimum salary, which uh, I don't understand why they wonder why they don't have uh, social workers in aged care when they pay them uh, 24 bucks uh, an hour for this very difficult uh, work. Anyway, so she works so hard uh, to make 50 bucks. She needs to work two hours and I smoke them in one cigar. So I felt, <laughs> I felt it's frivolous. So I, I don't smoke anymore. It's a little unkind. Yeah. Speaking of frivolous, um, what, can you tell us a little bit about e-scooters? You've done a lot of work in in some very heavy areas of law, um, and and one area that that has um, made you a bit famous lately, perhaps notorious, is your work in about around the regulation of e-scooters. Which oh. um, can you tell us? Yeah, it's it's a bane for Please. a lot of pedestrians. Talk, can can you tell us a little? Tell, let's talk about e-scooters. My um, God, and, and your work and, and how you got into that from from you know human rights and international affairs. Um, you're you're now um, you're now the world expert. Certainly, Australia's the human rights expert. of an e-scooter. <laughs> Yeah, Google me up and you'll find there Cyprian Rodavoy, a specialist in law and transportation. <laughs> I know about transportation just as much as I know about refrigerators, which is pretty much nothing. Although, but um, um, yeah, I uh, I was almost knocked down by this uh, uh, a guy on the sidewalk uh, one day coming to work, and then again other incidents they are honking at me to clear the way they come very fast i can see police doesn't enforce any law here uh so then i thought wait a minute there must be a reason we call it footpath or sidewalk and mm. i did some research and i built this article that um pedestrians and people in wheelchairs and other categories even aboriginals they like to hang out on the footpath and it's it should be for everyone no but now it seems to be the you know the kingdom of um, high speed so i did some research and i put together this article in a rather harsh tone and i contacted the media people at cdu saying hey look guys i laid this uh, egg if you can market it in any way maybe somebody wants to, you know me to talk further about this because i was really um, i felt like i, I needed to speak out. Um, and nothing would have happened, but the guards of the um, sidewalks were on my side, and they let a poor old woman be knocked down by a scooter in Melbourne. Mm. And then all the media was looking for an expert in this matter to talk to. So, <laughs> so that's how I ended up with, I don't know, 20 radio interviews, and uh, the television contacted me, but uh, I was I had a influence at the time i couldn't go on tv and many articles on yeah and the, the article is in top five percent the most downloaded um, uh, ever and i'm a specialist wow. in law and transportation although i don't want to be one you haven't done enough because i was just almost knocked down yesterday so we, we, we need this to... is a this is a problem now around the country and 
what's really interesting is we had someone on a few years ago and see, I'm originally from Victoria. I've lived in South Australia, Queensland, Northern Territory, New South Wales. And if you have driven a car in any of those states, you would be under the impression that each state and territory has its own road rules. But in fact, their universal road rules have been since the 1980s or what have you. And the other interesting thing that you bring up there, Cyprian, is in regards to the footpath. And it's really interesting at the moment with these e-scooters because I've seen local councils around the country now start to come out and talk about the rules and regulations around these e-scooters. And how they're going to police it, I don't know. But, you know, because the ones that you hire, the coloured ones that you see all over the footpath and everywhere, they aren't, they're speed limited. They only go up to a certain speed. But now people are importing these things that do 60 kilometres an hour. They ride them with no helmet on the footpath, exactly as you say, and you and I almost get hit by them. One, one more thing. Uh, uh, the ones, the coloured ones you said, are geofenced. They're yes, banned correct. from going to some certain areas. Now, correct. I love to walk every evening. I, I walk for one hour. I do the loop in the East Point. Yep. Now, recently, there are guys riding their, uh, these private e-scooters very fast. There, I think they go 40 kilometers. Uh, there's no enforcement there. Uh, no. So I would like somehow to contact or uh, maybe uh, people like you who have a, you know, a louder voice can uh, uh, ask this question. Why, why does the council not enforce the, the rules? Yeah, and they're all talking about it. And I think, to be honest, um, uh, th this will um, perhaps infuriate you both a little bit. But years ago, I used to have a petrol version of these scooters. And I imported it from overseas and you get a little bit of normal petrol, you pour in a tiny little bit, you'd know this as an engineer, Cyprian, tiny little bit of oil, mix the mm -hmm. two-stroke together, and this thing would run on about a litre of fuel. It seemed to run for months and months, you know, and you just prime the engine a little bit, pull the cord, start yeah. it up, and away you go. And I, I did some research at the time because I thought, oh, everybody wants to have these things. This would be great. And I looked at importing them. And what I discovered was that they fit in a giant black hole. They're not a motorbike. They're not a push scooter. They're not a car. They're not a – and so I abandoned it because no council would deal with it. And as I said, it, it, it dropped into a black hole. And I suspect these e-scooters are probably the same. There's, they were until recently. Right. So they've changed now, have they? Yeah, but the way they change it, look uh, – it's a bit like uh, ties do. You will see often a tie with the driving a white car, but on the back of the car it says, this car is blue. Now, <laughs> now, now uh, I, I asked my wife, the reason is that spirits, the spirits, the ghosts, hate white cars. However, the driver loves the white car. So the solution is to buy the white car to please the driver, but then to confuse the spirit, you will say there, this car is blue, this car is blue. So the spirits will, will get confused. Now, the same thing here. They changed the law, they amended the uh, road rules, the uniform road rules, saying that anything that drives, that is built to drive up to 25 kilometers per hour is analogized to a pedestrian. So mm. basically they did like the ties do. They put the words pedestrian on the e-scooter mm. if it goes up to 25. It was the same before, but only if the, the machine could ride up to 10 kilometers, which makes more sense, up to 10 kilometers. Yeah. But up to 25 kilometers, you cannot really uh, uh, make the analogy with the pedestrian, but that's how it's now. So now they fit somewhere. They are pedestrians. Those so, they're to, so they're to go on the footpath, but speed limited to 25 kilometers an hour. Yes, and then right. the same rules, rules as applies to pedestrians apply to them. They are fictional legal pedestrians. <laughs> Which is right. nonsense. So, Look, I'm not against these. I mean, they are fun. Correct. I'm, correct. I'm I'm just for just regulating them in a way, leaving some space for for correct. And the other thing that does my head in, and it has since day one, and it continues to this very day, is kids, not even with scooters, with push bikes, 
who have the helmet dangling on the handlebars. Mm. Yeah. Right? Just leave it at home. If you want to die because you hit a tree head first, then leave your helmet at home. There's no point putting it on the handlebars and or putting it on your head but not doing up the clip. That's the other one they love. And this is not, look, if it's about them, I'd say if they want to take risks, that's their problem. But this behavior impacts you as a pedestrian if you're hit, because in the small print, it says that uh, you are insured, you have third-party insurance, so you'll be paid if you are injured, unless the rider was in breach of the rules. So this kid, by not wearing the helmet, is breaching the rules, and if this kid hits you, the insurance will not cover him to pay you for the injury. Wow. So it has implications beyond the, the safety for him. And, or it's, and it's hugely flawed because um, when, when you know, I don't want to drop anybody in it here, but I've seen it so many times now. Uh, it's not an anecdote. It's fact. They're meant for one person. The amount of times you see two riders on these things at the same time. And there's just no way that the people riding them late at night have not been drinking. Mm. And so they won't be insured for all those reasons. And yet, how's it your fault that you're walking down the footpath when one of these people runs you over? And why why is there nothing done about that? It's not that that, that difficult. Uh, it's enough to, to give a few fines and then uh, the world will spread and people will yes. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, I don't know, it's the same old story. The police is understaffed or they don't feel that's what happens on the footpath is their business or I don't know. Yeah, and look, out of all of these, the one, the ones that concern me the most are the ones that are rampantly overpowered. Yeah. They're, they're, they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't even be on the roads, let alone on the footpaths. But, you know, it takes one little mishap and that could be hitting a rock that you didn't see. And you know someone will die badly from these things. Have. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's right. My kids mm-hmm. told me the other day that that's exactly right. But more people will die, and it's completely needless. Um, and as you say, they are fun to ride. You know, it's, this isn't about saying they shouldn't exist, but they've just got to be regulated better. So, so we we definitely need to do more there cyprian if the world lets you move on from e-scooters which we're not sure we will but if we let <laughs> you move on from e-scooters would we what do you think what do you think's most interesting and challenging in your work and are you inspired by your life in the territory in terms of the topics obviously you were with e-scooters which what what you were experiencing what else is happening in the territory that inspires what you're doing in your research and writing and teaching or is it is it back to international law and public international law. What are you up to? Yes, that's it. It, indeed, that's what happened. It brought me back to international law. I had this, uh, uh, even before in Armidale, I had this feeling that uh, uh, not enough uh, way is given to rural and remote communities in international law. And uh, I had a few chats with my colleague back there, and they said, no, it's nonsense. There's, there's no room for remote communities in international law. It's about big cities, decision-making. Uh, presidents and whatever. And uh, after I came to, to the territory, I felt again strongly that there is something to say there. So I contacted some people from the International Law Association, uh, which uh, confirmed that my idea as a research path is, is good. So now I'm publishing an, an article in a Texas International Law Journal and a book with uh, Rutledge on the role of the r- rural and remote communities in the international law. So that's kind of something uh, new and uh, it will keep me busy for uh, for a while. Other than that, the um, um, social issues that are, uh, that are here um, have not... R- really been my concern because I kind of um, I tend to go to an area where I'm more familiar with which is uh, uh, international law rather than uh, you know domestic well, policy well, that rural and remote is is obviously really important in the territory and um, you know just uh, so many ways it's arisen um, just for me since I've been here uh, in terms of um, how law is interpreted, how it's um, conveyed, um, and so on. So, um, yeah, I, can you give us a potted summary? And, and I see that we're, we're sort of running, running low on time here, but can you give us just be- as we sort of start to wrap up a quick potted summary of, of what you're saying about rural and remote um, communities and, and international law? I'm saying that um, 
rural and remote communities are um, have a should have a stronger say in the the design of international law because uh, they are in many ways impacted by um, uh, um, international transnational events and they could be better protected by international law things for example think for example that i don't know village massacres that uh, uh, happen in uh, in africa and uh, uh, humanitarian law should have a stronger voice there think uh, for example uh, uh, that um, think of ukraine now uh, how their um, villages were feeding actually the planet with their uh, grains and now they cannot do it anymore because of the conflict um, in, um, uh, in in many ways, look, um, cities are now accepted as a, a non-state actors in international law. New York is a is a player in international law, just like I don't know Romania is. Yeah. So, um, in in my work, I adopt a variety of perspectives of, of building this idea that uh, uh, villages, towns should have a, a mm. stronger voice, and uh, it seems to be successful. Fascinating! Wow. Thanks. I'd love to talk to you further one day about uh, the things that you did with the human rights stuff. Um, we had a guest on a while ago who has also done a lot of that with regards to uh, victims from the Vietnam region and uh, it's it's something that I think doesn't get a, enough of a voice. So at some point we, we may have another conversation about that, Cyprian. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. It's been great chatting to you and learning your story. And uh, like uh, all of our guests, but, you know, particularly our international ones like you and Liz, you're, uh, uh, you know, a, a welcome extra in the territory. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me here. And, yes, I'm very happy in the territory. Liz, congratulations. One episode <laughs> down. Good job. Thanks, Peter. This is this is um, such fun and such a privilege for me. Thanks very much, and um, yeah, but look forward to um, to working with you. Thanks, Liz. You too. And that was uh, Cyprian Radovoy on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again on the next episode. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.